Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your novice and wannabe theologian and Religionless Church host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Silas Caraba. Silas is the community theologian and coordinator at Mosaic Church in Vancouver, Canada. He is also the author of A Beautiful Bricolage, Theopoetics as God Talk for Our Time. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Therapy. Therapy is a hardcore band from the Pacific Northwest. You can get connected with both Silas and Therapy and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If Religionless Church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is to become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Silas Caraba, um, which is not how I would initially have thought your last name was spelled, or uh, that's how you pronounce your last name, but it's Caraba. Um, and Silas, you do a number of things. You work at a church as community theologian and coordinator of Mosaic Church, which is in Vancouver, uh, BC. And uh, so you do that and you have your, your master's and, uh, and you now are also an author. So Silas, you do a number of things in the world. You're, you work at a church um, and you're an author. Uh, but I'm curious, who is Silas Caraba to Silas Caraba? <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, so I'm a multitude of relations, I guess I would say. <laughs> that's that's then, exactly how Tim Burnett said that too. Okay. That's exactly um, how he answered. Yeah. So a couple of my relations that I, that I've been thinking about recently are, uh, coming to terms, coming to grips and exploring, uh, my identity as a settler in a colonial country. Mm. So I'm in Vancouver, Canada, and, uh, we live on unceded territory that wasn't ceded by treaty war or surrender. Mm. So we're in occupied land. So the most, um, like maybe easy reference for people to understand that would be like Palestine as occupied territory. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first nations in this area, um, understand this area to be their ancestral territory. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about my settler identity. I, I'm also a husband to a wonderful wife and yeah, I'm a member of my, uh, faith community at Mosaic church, which is an interesting assortment of people in, in, uh, 
a very urban poor context in our mm. city. Yeah. That's wonderful. So let's talk about the book. What was an unexpected surprise learning while writing a beautiful bricolage, Theopoetics, as God Talk for Our Time? What was something that surprised you that you learned that you didn't expect? Yeah, um, I think while writing it, I made myself deeply uncomfortable at a couple of points, hmm. uh, realizing how Theopoetics can take you into this open, imaginative space. But then things that I once wanted to grasp, I had to let go of. So it's uh, it was a it was an exploration of kind of letting myself be without a whole lot of certainty, mm-hmm. and so that that surprised me on an existential level. Those were things I um, had been through deconstruction in my faith and mm-hmm. gone to academic school and dealt with, but then when putting a book into the world, it was, um, yeah, I experienced it at a different sort of level, kind of making my peace with a foundationless uh, existence. Hmm. Yeah. What, is there anything in particular that you sort of had to let go of, or are you mentioning like the, the, the foundationlessness is something that you had to let go of, or is there something else in specific that you found yourself having to let go of? Yeah, I had to um, let go of an understanding that the goal was to be right. Mm. I grew up in a, um, mm-hmm. in a Reformed church, and being correct was of utmost importance. Right. So in Theopoetics, when you're exploring metaphors and imagery and poetry and interpretation, the idea of there being a single correct answer was that was a that was kind of a big move for me personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of single correct answers, I was curious, uh, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with Theopoetics, what is Theopoetics? And I know there's lots of different responses by lots of different people. I'm sure if you had 100 different Theopoets, they would all give you 100 different definitions. But how would you maybe define Theopoetics? Yeah. I, I dislike this question. I get asked it every yep. time. I think about it, but, uh, but so what I'll go with today, which changes every time, is maybe that theopoetics is a way of understanding oneself in the world in a very holistic mode. Mm-hmm. So often we understand ourselves in the world in very narrow scopes, having to do with my career or my family or my nationality. but. Theopoetics includes like how we think and how we um, process our experiences and doing so with the use of poetry and images and metaphor to expand kind of what we might see as narrow at first Mm -hmm. and then doing it with reference to divinity or God or any number of grand ideas Mm -hmm. that we have a hard time pinning down. So then Theopoetics is then exploring oneself in relation to grand ideas by means of imagery and metaphor. Uh, That's how I'll describe Theopoetics today.
I'm sure at some point you stumbled upon Theopoetics. Describe what that was like when you first stumbled upon Theopoetics, and then what about Theopoetics has continued to compel you personally? Yeah, um, I come to Theopoetics not as a poet. Like in high school, mm. I hated poetry. I could not <laughs> understand it. I could not pin it down. I was not good at it. Uh, so I came kind of kicking and screaming to Theopoetics. The first engagement with the term probably was in John Caputo's What Would Jesus Deconstruct? Mm -hmm. uh, so I read that when I was in Bible college, beginning to grapple with post-modernity and what this big word meant. Mm -hmm. And a professor handed me uh, the first book in that series by Jamie Smith, uh, mm -hmm. who was afraid of postmodernism. And then I liked that and I bought the next book, which was John Caputo's What Would Jesus Deconstruct? And in it, he contrasts theopoetics from a theologic. And mm. by that means theologic as like thinking about God through logical systems versus thinking about God through poetic utterance. By that, he doesn't mean necessarily like a sonnet of poetry, but just um, a resonance of words that opens an interpretation rather than closes down an interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the first time I interacted or became aware of theopoetics. And then throughout the rest of my schooling, I kept coming across different times this would pop up. So mm -hmm. when I was exploring process theology and Catherine Keller's work, theopoetics reared its head. And I was reading blogs. And one time the work of Cuba Malvez came up in an obituary for him. and. I kept bumping into it in the end edges of um, academic discourse. And I thought that this has got to be something of, of interest and worth exploring at a more in-depth length because where I found it was in different projects ending up in different places and they all kind of pulled back together into this more imaginative realm of um, somewhat speculative theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it seems like God was really luring you into it, right? Like, you, I mean, it's always at these little edges and then it just like keeps coming back around and you're like, well, maybe there's something here. What's, what's going on? Yeah. And it was, it was also attached with a frustration as going through uh, Christian education. And I was surrounded by a lot of evangelicals in that. And it always seemed that the, mode of thought, not necessarily what we're talking about, but how the decisions and the logic of the argument was being made seemed completely arbitrary and undefended. Um, and that those kind of questions led into more into hermeneutics and metaphysics and how are we creating logical decisions. And then through that kind of hyper-rational like research in a logical kind of sense, I ended up into poetics. Hmm. Tail end of that journey, right? Yeah. With, with Caputo being your introduction, I'm sure it was an honor for you for him to write a little blurb on the back, right, uh, of of the book. And so I'm sure there was something there that you you really gratefully appreciated. That here's the person that introduced me to this thing. Now I'm writing about it, and now he's even writing a little bit about the work that I'm 
uh, contributing to this to this Theopoetics project. Yeah, that was a very encouraging when uh, he sent back that recommendation for the back of the book. I uh, I had a big smile on my face yeah, for a couple. I'm sure. Yeah. So early on in the book, you say this. Theopoetics, insofar as it can cultivate a new religious imagination, offers hope to what Amos Wilder sees as a bleak dreamscape that informs reality, which has come about due to a vapid social imagination. What is it within religion, Christianity specifically, that has contributed to a vapid imagination? Yeah, that was one of those provocative things I came across uh, in doing research for this book, because uh, a lot of religious people like to think we have um, a more expansive imagination compared to reductionist materiality, for example. Mm -hmm. But uh, Wilder pushes further, and he, he takes on people who kind of push back too hard against Calvin, saying Calvin systematized too much and that crushes the imagination. Mm. Uh, Wilder pushes further in time, genealogically, into the revival movements of mm. uh, religious revivals and says that what happens in that time as we see the rise of nation states happening and the social sphere becoming um, more important in play as hierarchies are challenged by rising democracy and tides. At that same kind of time in history, we have this uh, kind of narrowing of the religious imagination to the experience of sitting uh, at one of these revivals, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and knock your socks off. But that was then the only place where the Holy Spirit um, was located. Mm. So rather than wondering how the Holy Spirit or the religious imagination might uh, shape all of the social spheres of politics and economics, as well as our religious ceremonial spaces, what happened was this narrowing, and I think we still see this in um, in different churches, different forms, I think you could see it across denominations, where the religious imagination is defended, but only within the walls of the church. Mm -hmm. So once on Sunday, we come in and we leave our secularism and our reductionist materiality to the side, and we come in and we say nice platitudes about miracles and about the new earth and all of this, but we limit it so much that it ends up not having an effect on the rest of our lives because we're not doing the work of imagination in a robust sense and expecting there to be novelty across society. And so, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of Wilder's push in that section. And uh, I think he's right. I think we do narrow our religious experience and um, our wonder and awe and imagination. Uh, and these things still function in society, but we don't have any um, historical kind of resources to mm. make. It. So like even in the scientific disciplines, like the hard natural sciences, awe and wonder are inspiring scientists to push further into their disciplines. Right. But there's not necessarily, um, say, like a treasure chest of images and metaphors to draw on 
to cultivate an even broader sense of imagination about what might be possible in scientific mm. exploration. Mm -hmm. How is it that theopoetics, rather than flee from, pro approaches, dare I even say, invites itself into materiality? Yeah, theopoetics um, makes use of metaphors, and metaphors are rooted in embodied experience. Mm -hmm. So we, we understand one thing to be similar to another thing because we have experienced it often physically through touch and sight and smell. And out of those kind of linking of experiences, we can move our intellectual puzzle pieces around to make something else. So what Theopoetics does by forefronting the metaphor, not as merely used to explain um, an abstract cognitive Thing in the sky like a platonic idea mm -hmm. uh, it moves us into the world to look at a tree more deeply and see how that tree and whatever metaphor of the tree we're using might take us away from the archetypal tree and spread our thoughts more deeply and organically into that trees do weird things <laughs> and it's not just like the nice christmas tree i can draw because my artistic skills are limited, but <laughs> when I look more deeply at the world, those metaphors gain and expand and um, open new possibilities. So you... in that, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. In that sense, it draws us deeper into the world rather than drawing us further away into um, an abstraction from the world. You were talking about uh, just a bit ago about your experience as a settler on indigenous people's land. My assumption is that for many of indigenous people in Canada, they have an embodied experience that I think Theopoetics honors. They have a material existence that Theopoetics wants to honor. Can you maybe talk more about that? Maybe maybe you've encountered this personally with maybe some indigenous friends. Yeah, I, uh, the, the small church I work at has actually an extremely high ratio of uh, First Nations from Canada as part of our regular attenders kind of parts of the community. Mm -hmm. And um, they see the world differently than I do. So I had a really good friend um, who passed away this past year he was our indigenous elder for our church. And he would, he would think differently than I did. So he would use eagles and ravens and the stories of his people mm. to help explain how we could work better towards reconciliation. So although we might be a crow and an eagle and they don't necessarily get along, there's moments of light where you can actually see eagles and ravens flying together mm. and it not it's not every time it's not 
always nice. Sometimes it ends in fighting, but there's these momentary glimpses through kind of that metaphor of that he and I butted heads all the time. We just, we had a very challenging relationship, but through that challenge, we had these moments of light, which were deeply relational mm-hmm. and deeply embodied where um, toward the end of his life, he, he ended up being in the hospital a lot. And there's a physicality that you can't deny when you're in those spaces about his body being connected to his spirit and his mind and mind being different and yet growing in empathy. So I don't know if that's exactly an example you're pushing towards. Um, but it would be nice to, for me to cast him as an indigenous man who is, I'm able to understand without having those deep experiences mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. But there's no way for me to actually do that. And through that relationship, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about listening and listening to language and stories that I didn't know where they were going. So in Western discourse, we often, even how we're taught to write an essay, right? We load up the thesis statement in the introduction and yep. we bring it back right in the conclusion. And you don't actually have to read most of it. So you can pick up any number of books off the um, from the library and read a couple of paragraphs if well chosen and you have a really good idea of what's going to be said in the rest of it. I don't recommend anybody doing that with a beautiful bricolage. Yeah, you could try, but my friend, um, you would have no idea where his point Mm. was going. He would begin telling a story and you just had to be present for the story and the story would go where it will. Um, and it caused me to reflect on how I was actually engaging with people. Mm. So whether I was loading up my, um, expectations to have all of the information given to me within a nice, succinct, like first 30 seconds of the conversation, and then we could play out the rest of the conversation without really paying attention to each other. Whereas his way of being and storytelling, it forced you to be present in a way that, um, the typical Western, more um, structured way of discussing things together didn't allow for. Mm-hmm. How does theopoetics interact and wrestle with power? Yeah. Uh, theopoetics is incredibly suspicious of power. Mm. Uh, suspicious of power, not because all power is bad, but because power can limit and limit opportunities and openness because it often wants to re-entrench the status quo. And so that's where I think theopoetics as a, as an exploration where many of those who are engaged in theopoetics move towards open interpretation where the end and the interpretation is open and there can be multiple meanings. Uh, That's not the way systems of power become super entrenched in society. Mm -hmm. So where there is power in society, it, it benefits uh, those in power to maintain power and change as little as possible. So we do this with what's an acceptable argument. So if Mm -hmm. we set the terms of the argument and if we can define the terms of the argument, then we can win the argument. So long as we don't use any metaphors that could be explained in a slightly different way. 
And so that's a use of power in communication where we limit the outcomes by our methods and our definitions right up front. So theopoetics, for good reason, is necessarily suspicious of power because if we're interested in what's new and novel and potential and beautiful, um, beauty comes from unexpected places often, where if we're trying to be in control of everything, mm. we, we only can replicate what we previously thought was beautiful. But there's no, no moments of surprise of new beauty breaking forth in unexpected ways. And new beauty will break forth in unexpected ways when power is uh, released a little bit, or at least our fists are pried open slightly so that something else can come uh, that we don't quite expect. What is it about theopoetics that allows it to span such a multiplicity of theologies, from radical to liberation to process and many more? Um. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly diverse, I think, because we are experiencing the world in diverse ways. And poetry, unlike what's considered a rational discourse in uh, Western civilization, uh, no, one, no one owns it. Uh, so although we might romanticize the individual poet writing in the woods, alone and coming up with perfect poetry, uh, anybody can take up poetry to express their experience of the world. Mm. I think that's what allows it to pop up in different spaces. So in the same way that no one controls or owns God, we might say, then, then those moments of the divine or ex an experience of God or of love can pop up in anybody's life and no one can say that they control those experiences. Uh, and so then when you put the two together an uncontrolled language usage, kind of like poetry, especially like free verse, mm -hmm. whatever you might think of it, um, it's, it's a radically democratizing uh, use of language. And the same way that we might say that the spirit's movement in the world is also radically democratizing. Today we have the guys from Therapy who are the, it's, Therapy is the artist of the music that you're listening to throughout this episode. And uh, there's four of you. Uh, let me see if I can, I'm really bad with names. All right, so there's Jared and Micah, I got those two. And then Justin and West. Did I get it right, guys? Yeah, you got it. Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, we've got four guys from Therapy, uh, and you guys have like the band name. This is like a common trend in, in like artists right now. There's like, uh, I think it was like a Vici or something. There was churches. There's all these artists that are popping up that don't have any vowels. Although you do have two vowels at the end of your name, but what's, what's going on in, in music? Why, what's wrong with vowels, people? Uh, I don't know. I guess it looks trendy. I can explain 
how oh. you came up with THRPII. Yeah, I know that it was originally THRPI. Yeah, so initially we wanted to use therapy, obviously spelled out correctly, but that's taken plenty of times. So we were <laughs> like, oh, cool, THRPY, but that was right. taken too. What? So then we were I, and then that THRPI was taken on Instagram, so I just did, <laughs> I did it like forwards and backwards. And then one of our photographer friends who was taking band photos for us posted, here's the photos of therapy with two eyes. And we were like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is yeah. there, is there like, I mean, obviously the, the way it's spelled doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, but is there a reason why the band name therapy? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, I, I guess some of like the obvious implications being that it's for, for us, especially like a big release. Mm. Uh, not only just like I think artistically and emotionally, but um, uh, I mean like lyrically, especially also mm-hmm. a therapeutic experience of going through. Uh, I know true, true of both Justin and I. We've been writing lyrics, um, a lot of processing through religious backgrounds and yeah. that nature. Absolutely. Um, speaking of lyrics. Uh... What and I, Jared? I know you're kind of a theologically minded person. Uh, you like to think about theology, and I know I've talked to Micah before, and I know he he does as well. Uh, and I I don't know about the rest of you, but what are what's some theology that has been influential in the making of this album? Anybody want to take a stab? <laughs> uh, I I think. One of you guys should explain that, yeah. but we all concur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with whatever they're about yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. a lot of trust you have in your bandmates. No, yeah. I mean it's it's built on a lot of conversations we've had. About so I can basically that, say but, anything right yeah. now, and they've all signed their names. Okay, well, that's <laughs> not, that's <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> uh, but no, um, in all realness here, um, we all have a pretty. Uh, I would say we. For the most part, we all have a pretty uh, kind of cookie cutter background uh, in the in the beginnings of our faiths. Okay. Um, and uh, we've all experienced a lot of movements away from that, while still maintaining hmm. uh, certain very very key elements of faith in our lives. Um. But this was a big process of rejecting a lot of things that uh, you might typically find within a Christian church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's kind of vague, but we can get into specifics and get down to the nitty gritty. But uh, I don't know. I, I, we, we have a more liberal view of what faith is. And, uh, yeah, I think a big element. As touchy as that word is. We got to be careful. <laughs> a big element that I think is present, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is uh, kind of a common theme, uh, not only lyrically, but also just like, obviously what we're trying to convey with the music emotionally is this big kind of dreadful overarching element of doubt, mm. maybe, that uh, we feel like, and I feel like we've had conversations about this, like, I think doubt is really healthy, and it's an aspect of our faith that I think uh, the traditional Christian church kind of doesn't necessarily condone doubting. <laughs> and uh, a lot of our lyrics uh, are kind of privy to like make you know what that one, you know, like relate to what that feels like to actually let yourself be open to doubt in mm-hmm. seeking truth. Mm-hmm. Because 
how can you find truth if you don't doubt it yeah in the first place you know yeah right? i mean i mean directly in the in the last song on the ep primordial uh i mean it's definitely a lot of those like clear clear confrontations with um thinking through and experiencing things differently from uh, religious upbringings i mean like that song specifically is <clears throat> like the death of god very mm. very poignantly yeah uh, um you know so much so that uh I, I guess i take a slightly modified position but uh i mean i can i compare this idea of like primordial deities the, uh, the gods of old to this idea of uh god dying and satan falling you know mm. so uh, i mean some of them are very direct some of them not so direct but they're all i think uh confrontations with what's central to us at least yeah you mentioned before about doubt being like a really key theme lyrically i'm curious how do you capture that theme sonically in the music oh that's, 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 a, tough, that's a tough question. Yeah. I think it has, uh, there's so many elements, uh, you know, involved with that. I don't know if you had a chance to check out uh, our newest music video also we released for our oh, song. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, oh, yeah, I'll send you the, yeah. send you the link. So what it actually is, is this, it's just a one take, shaky, blurry video of just chaos of one of our first shows. And mm -hmm. uh, it actually is portraying a lot of different emotions throughout the video, not mm -hmm. so like, dig too deep into a video but like it's uh it shows first of all like just the inclusive environment of our show and everybody going mm -hmm. crazy with us mm -hmm. but i think also for me like watching it and editing it and like just like fine-tuning it i was i personally was struck by the music and like what we're doing and the way we're interacting with the crowd i think is almost it's almost a uh well it's therapeutical you know like yeah. that's the name but like that that is uh i think all done in the name of doubt and more than that but like in the in the name of just like questions and mm. wonder and worry and uh dread but also like redemption and mm. you know being together and like whatever else goes along with that and i think that sonically like i think everybody's gonna have their own idea of like what that feels like yeah. for themselves and like we're finding them more often than not people are finding that in our music as well. Yeah, yeah and, and just to kind of piggyback um, off of that there, Wes, uh, I mean, the music, if you just break it down, there's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of uh, a lot of distortion on the guitars. These are very aggressive uh, sounds that we are portraying. Mm -hmm. um, that's typically, you know, if we're experiencing that in our own private lives. That's, uh, that's reflecting some, some, some issues. Mm. That's reflecting some some type of uh, internal struggle or or stuff you're going through, and I think uh, you know I think that that's why you know this this project for us um, it really works well as a catalyst for for these ideas. And it's so much more than just angst. Yeah. I feel like often, <laughs> yeah, most society, especially those that don't get into this kind of genre, like they that's what they think it is. I know that you just recently released a, an EP, but are there any other future projects you have on your horizons? Are there any tours uh, that you're thinking about? Any other shows? Uh, maybe even some other music that you're hoping to release soon? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot. So. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot. I'm, uh, 
well, hopefully we'll have a couple more singles out throughout this year, some music videos, whatnot. Hmm. Um, and we're kind of in the works to do like little, like some small West Coast tours. I think okay. at the very least, like a Northwest tour. Um, but yeah. Yeah. We do have several shows coming up locally yeah. at uh, big name venues here locally. And we're like, going to be putting out some pretty high production music videos as well pretty soon as well. Yeah, so. Wes is a videographer by trade. Yeah. So oh, that's, nice. That's, yeah. yeah, we awesome. actually all have like uh, really important elements that we all bring to the table to yeah. make it a lot better than it could be. Like Justin, Justin did all the work, all the uh, mixing and producing on that EP. Okay. Also Bruce Beer. He also Bruce Beer. Yeah. What an all around guy. I want to, yeah, can, uh, can I propose to you, Justin? My, uh, my theology degree came in handy. <laughs> yeah, all their content. Yeah. And Micah has breads. And that's all. <laughs> <laughs> and nipple tape. Yeah. That's all, that's all he brings to the table for DM as well. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's just kind of there. Well, uh, yeah, speaking, speaking of that, I mean, some of it's kind of, uh, I'm not going to reveal all of it, but uh, there could possibly be a little crossover there. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, um, therapy and DM for some sort of uh, weird uh, speaker music. And maybe some other local artists as well we're talking about. Yeah. That's one thing really cool about the Spokane music community is it's, it's it like Spokane, a lot of people's eyes are on the city right now because it's growing and like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's becoming, well, it's becoming something, but the music scene remains super close knit. So mm -hmm. that's been really beneficial for us. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for uh, for chatting, and uh, I hope that you guys uh, find some really good success with this mu new music coming out. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Cheers, As the community theologian and coordinator at Mosaic Church in Vancouver, how has theopoetics shaped your ecclesiology at your church? Uh, yeah, so at our church, we exist in a different mode than most churches. So when I'm speaking uh, at church, I'm not standing at the front. Mm. I sit down around one of the tables that we have set out, and we don't sit in rows. And no one is expected to sit or stand at certain times. Uh, so we've done a lot of deconstructing our, our, what our ecclesiology looks like to allow for actual bodies to be present. So a lot of theopoetics moves towards our embodiment and dignifying the diversity of embodiment within the world and our ecosystems. And so in Mosaic, people come in with different abilities, different histories, different amounts of physical hunger. So if someone wants to get up and make a peanut butter and jam sandwich at any point in the service, that just is a norm that we accept. Mm. And I don't come with a homiletical script that I'm going to present uh, as if I'm presenting a pedagogy to children, but I pepper whatever ideas I have with questions where the community voice, that community discussion can reverberate in kind of poetic ways. Uh, conversation 
flows in a different way than logical propositions. Uh, conversation bounces around mm -hmm. and has a, a cadence that is different. So, the, and I think that's theopoetic. And so it's that the cadence of a voice of God in one of our gatherings can be different than my voice. And in fact, sometimes whatever I present, uh, we might start in one place and end up in a completely different place than I expected because those voices are allowed to speak in whatever cadence and style they, um, they're able to express themselves. And so it also mirrors or echoes or reverberates with theopoetics in that where our services go is open-ended. Um, I don't have to control that as the community theologian but I can entrust that the community is going to journey together and wherever that journey takes us is going to show us some beauty and it might not be perfect, but I don't have to be scared of that imperfection at the same time. What are some other liturgical practices that at Mosaic that you find value, value or are informed by theopoetics, uh, maybe with, the way music is used um, at your gatherings, or maybe uh, you, you talked about there's a lot of conversation. Is that uh, th that potentially is something that maybe is like sermons, quote unquote, uh, or maybe maybe even in in sacramental um, practices such as communion or baptism? What what are ways that you also find theopoetics infused in those practices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our church is called Mosaic, and every every gathering we begin by sharing our names. So I'll say, would someone like to begin our time together by sharing why we call ourselves Mosaic? And then I and then I don't speak, and I just wait in awkward silence, accepting that silence has to be made present. And sometimes that silence is long and awkward until mm -hmm. someone gets so awkward that they feel like they are going to share that week. Yep. Uh, but silence and speech have to work together. So we, we create that open space right off the bat by me not dominating um, the time. And so someone will share why we call ourselves Mosaic. And each week it will be different based on who shares why we call ourselves Mosaic. Mm -hmm. And it'll be along the lines of something like we come broken, like broken pieces of pottery and we're formed together in this time and in this space by a great artist to be a wonderful piece of art. And that's kind of like the basic of it. Mm -hmm. And whatever is going on in someone's life might be um, incorporated into that that week. Mm -hmm. Someone might use that time to share about some brokenness in their life that they're going through. So it might be, we come broken and this week I'm feeling it this way. And then we create that space then to move together with that. So that's one of our liturgical practices. And then music, we are um, one of the least musical churches I've ever been a part of. <laughs> we have some wonderful musicians, but corporate singing is not our strength. Mm. So often we are listening to the words and maybe singing along fairly quietly, mm. sitting at our tables, maybe doing some art projects at the same time. Um, but it opens a reflective space for our community to exist in before we have a conversation together. Mm. Um, and then we gather at communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist at the end of our service together 
and we do it each week. So we gather around the table, but unlike um, most churches who might have a set script of how to introduce the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. we introduce it any number of ways attached to where the conversation has been. So, Mm -hmm. so while I said earlier that I don't control where the conversation goes, it's my kind of job to take whatever's there and then welcome the community back into a place of belonging around the table. That no matter where they are, there's a table where they can belong, but they're also not forced to come in our church. So we do all of that. And then the last part of our liturgical thing that I want to mention is that we um, have kind of our coffee and socializing time prior to the service so that we can hear about each other's weeks and we can drink some coffee and eat peanut butter and jam sandwiches and be in relationship before we get to our kind of more structured, even though it's very loosely structured time together so that we come together in that time in hopefully a less um, prescriptive way where we can bring in those things uh, that are in each of our lives that we've heard and shared with each other into a time where we also focus on a scripture and we talk about it and we talk about what it means for our lives and how it might challenge us and how it might not have any answers in the text this week for our specific challenges mm-hmm. and, and leave all of those options on the table. Are you familiar with Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity at all? Yeah, I've that- done some thinking about it. Um, how do you envision theopoetics relating and or connecting to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity with the bit that you know about yeah. religionless Christianity? So in the most time I spent thinking about Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity was at a Bonhoeffer conference in 2015 that was here in Vancouver. And during that conference, um, a professor at the Vancouver School of Theology, Wendy Fletcher, presented a paper um, that was arguing that our time in Canada, so we we have a bad history of colonial um, colonial exploration and oppression in our country, and where we took children from First Nations homes and put them in residential boarding schools. And in those boarding schools, abuse and sexual abuse was nearly 100%. Mm. And so that's our history, and those schools were... Um, funded by the government, but often uh, facilitated by the church. Mm-hmm. So Wendy was doing um, an exploration of our moment in history, comparing it to that of Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, where the church has been completely complicit in the deepest evils of our society. Mm-hmm. And she moved in her reflection towards a wordless pro- proclamation. Um, so wordless Christianity or wordless church or relig- religionless Christianity. Mm. And, uh, and she kind of left her paper there. And I discussed with her after whether theopoetics might be a way for soft and delicate use of words. So in a context like Canada, where the words have been attached to atrocity, um, how can we use words in a way that don't re-victimize and re-harm people. Mm. And so potentially theopoetics can be a more generous 
less forceful, less violent in an intellectually violent way mm -hmm. into opening space for communication across deep woundedness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity, um, I think we can mirror that in religionless theopoetic forms of church where answers and doctrine um, might be communicated, but can be communicated more gently um, as servant to love and empathy and compassion. Mm. Um, so we can have some words and we might do some liturgical practices, but if we do them in less forceful ways, I think it takes on what might be a religionless flavor mm. of, uh, of being together. Mm -hmm. Last question. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? Uh, yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter and Instagram at SC Krubba. And uh, if you want to read more of my recent works, I have a uh, WordPress that's silas.krubba at WordPress. And if you want to know what's going on with the church, you can find uh, that at www.themosaic.org. And you can find out ways to support what we're doing there. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Silas. This has been a wonderful conversation. I love the work that you're doing. And uh, hopefully, maybe you're going to be, I don't know if you're going to be writing a little bit more about Theopoetics in the future, but I would love, whenever you are, I will for sure be your first, uh, your first person to buy a book. Awesome. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, Mason. If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Silas and Therapy, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it.